Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you are listening to The School of Discipleship. Welcome to our series on Bible Interpretation, the reliability and usability of the Christian scriptures in our age. In this eight-part series, Reverend Preston Graham examines the veracity, objectivity, and applicability of Scripture amongst the world's ever-changing approach to biblical interpretation, and ultimately answers how we can be assured that the Bible itself is sufficient. Well, so we're coming to the end here. We have today, and we have next week, and then we're off until the next semester. So I hope you have enjoyed it and are enjoying it, and the food has been great. Kudos to whoever's been choosing that. I think Annie, I guess, but so you'll tell her thank you if you see her around. Okay, so as you know, we're going to pick up pretty much with where we did last week and uh, keep talking about the the literary approach and, and kind of applied. So that's what we're here to do. Um, you know, there it is. That's what we're going to do right there. So you can read. And the, we have a lot to do. You know, we didn't cover everything we wanted to last week because I did the full introduction. So we're going to hit on, I want to really slow down with the Gospels and with the book of Revelation. Um, so I'm going to really do, I'm going to just sort of touch on the Psalms and on the Proverbs. Um, they're, they're really very similar, actually, um, and, and not in the sense that they're similar as a genre, but the principles of interpretation are pretty similar. Uh, because they both function uh, relative to redemptive history in the same way. So you'll see that. So I think we can pull this off, but that's sort of the agenda um, to kind of, you know, pop through these relatively quick. You have the reason I'm giving you the full handout, though, is because I knew that we would not be able to cover everything I'd want to say. So I do encourage you, if you haven't already, to read the handouts and reflect on them. And particularly since next week is our last one, I would encourage you to come with some specific questions or, or issues you feel like were not clearly answered for you or you're still struggling with. Next week, there'll be a little time for Q&A. Uh, we will first talk about how do you translate Bible interp into being a small group leader, and then how do you translate Bible interp into discerning wisdom, you know, or knowing God's will. And those kind of the two major issues I'll look at, I'll touch on the issue of church polity, but I think we'll, we cover that a lot in our shepherd leader training, so it, it would be interesting to hit on it. So I might try to hit on it, but, but I hope to have some time for you to do a little Q&A as well. All right? We good? Anybody got a joke? Something? Nope. Got to be quick around here, don't we? All right, Josh, you're in the front row. You're it. Would you pray for us? Amen. All right, so get the handout going here. Psalms. Um, so 
what do you think, you know, when you think of the Psalms, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Poetry, good. What are the Psalms about? What would come to your mind there? God, okay. You, okay. Real struggles. Good. Real struggles, situational. Anything else? Themes? Somehow they're very easy to relate to. They, 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 they speak existentially is the word I would use if you want me to use it, but um, they're sort of existential. We, we readily form a, a relationship to the Psalms. They're very, let's call it incarnational. They're very incarnational. They're really, they're, it, there's a lot of flesh and, and, and the, in the Psalms. It's not abstract. It's tangible, fleshy stuff. Very good. Um, and uh, that's really going to be a, a clue for you. Um, but the other thing that I would note about the themes is I think most people uh, are surprised to know that the, the predominant theme in the, the Psalms is lament. The second most prominent theme is praise. I think that's an interesting observation. You know, um, often lament is, you'll often find it in the form of, of you just crying out with a petition of lament, a lamentable, if you will, petition. But then oftentimes a psalm will work out the problem by the end of the psalm in a way that you will, you will trust in the Lord and, and the Lord will be exalted oftentimes in the at latter aspect of lament in a manner that says, well, but God answers the lament by who he is. And it's like this real genuine existential journey of moving from lament to exaltation where the doctrine of God begins. There's a lot of doctrine about God in the Psalms. And there's a lot of, of, of doctrine of sin in the Psalms. It is very relational. Okay. So that's just a couple of things. Um, it's interesting to note, uh, a little note here, that, that um, you know, in terms of the author, uh, often it is David, uh, but not always. It can be, it's, it, it's those who would also... Uh, write even in a Davidic tone or sense, but it can be the choir director, it can be uh, others, but it is within the Davidic covenant, you know, uh, and which is part of the Mosaic covenant, which is going to be important to recognize. Remember, we always have to locate our passage in a covenantal context, so we know what to do with it. And so the things that we talked about in that covenantal exchange or, or thing is all going to apply to the Psalms. You're going to expect, and I, I mean, I can't say this loud enough. Um, well, you tell me, what, what, if, if this is a songs, songs often for worship, often for personal meditation, whatever, but if these are songs, um, and they are songs about our journey with God, in the, and, but yet in this very real life way, um, what would you expect in terms of its relationship to New Covenant? What? What might be the most expected thing that you would find? Can you think about that? What's what? Where is this going to take us? Because we're living under the new covenant, not the covenant of the Psalms. So right now, you already know you got to make a translation here. You got to go from the old covenant to the new. And okay, good. One thing you might look for is typology or the voice of Christ in the songs. Very important. It will transform the way you read it. 
for instance, um, another genre in the Psalms is, is what's called imprecatory Psalms. That is, you know, praying for God's curse upon his enemies. Now, this is why it's so dangerous. It's so tempting in the Psalms to form this one-to-one relationship between me and the, and the psalmist. But it's also the most dangerous thing you're going to do. Because if you do it, you're going to forget that this isn't just anyone singing or praying. This is Israel qua Israel's king. This is, in effect, uh, uh, an office representing the office of king, office of even savior king, which is why David is the number one person that is typed in the New Testament to be Christ. I mean, David is clearly, according to the gospel, and according to the gospels in the New Testament, a type of Christ. So now what are you going to do? You're going to read the Psalms as representative of the voice, which is a type of Christ's voice. And now think about that. You're praying, you're praying God's curse upon your enemies. Now, how is this going to change? Now, if if you were to be thinking of, of the, the, the prayer in a in a personal way, that would almost give you a kind of freedom, wouldn't it? God destroy my enemies. He's my enemy. Destroy him. Kill him. Cut his head off. I mean, there's some graphic stuff there. Now, if you're hearing Jesus say that, what, what are you thinking? Possibly destroy the sin, not the sinner. That's something you could think about. But I'm thinking something even more profound. What? Okay, spiritual. But what? What is the? What is the result of that prayer to to destroy? Um, the, the 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 you know the enemies of God. Where is that going to go in the gospel? Where is that going to happen? Well, you could say when Jesus returns. That's true. But it's going to happen on Jesus first. Jesus is the one that's going to be destroyed. He's going to hell. That's that sermon that I preached. So all of a sudden you begin to realize that you've got to take the Psalms through the cross of Christ. What's victory going to look like? When, when it promises, when, it, when it's crying for abundance and, and asking God to prosper, there's a lot of Psalms that are about prosperity. And, it's, and, and the prosperity is defined in terms that are very lusciously physical. Now what are we going to do with that in the New Testament? Come on, theologians, Bible students, you should know this. It's good. What are you going to do with that coming into the New Covenant? Is, is, is it just wrong? I mean, some of you were in Compline. Do you remember the, about three weeks ago? I see a couple of you, Laura, you guys, um, where I, in the psalm, I went blah, blah, blah. I went through it and look what they're describing here. Wasn't this great? Da, 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 da. I'm going, blah, blah, blah. This is bull. Because it's not true. Christ has come. The kingdom of God has come. We're going to see this in the, in the and I don't see the, I don't see what they're talking about happening now. Okay, so what are you going to do with that? See, that's the answer. What, what are you going to do right now? We are living in the in-between of Christ's first and second coming. Where do we see that prosperity now? This prosperity that's going to be prayed in the Psalms. The relationship with God? You talking about? Yeah. Okay. So think about how that would be said by Paul. 
Can you think of a place in Paul where he speaks of prosperity the way that we you just said? There you go. Good passage. There you go. I mean, he boasts when he goes to Corinth. He talks about all these rights and privileges that, and he talks about how he's deserving of a good wage for what he does. Don't muzzle the ox. And I'm in chapter nine right now in my head. He's talking about the respect that he's owed. He's talking about the wealth and, and the prestige. And that's what the Corinthians wanted. They thought that they were reading the Psalms wrong, you could say. They were reading the Psalms as if to say, when the Holy Spirit comes, there's going to be health, wealth, and prosperity. We'll know a prophet by health, wealth, and prosperity, by popularity. And Paul comes on the scene and says, I have the right to ask you for a lot of things, but I've foregone those rights. And he says, I boast in what? He doesn't boast of his wealth. That's not his resume. His popularity, that ain't his resume. His, his, even his giftedness uh, as an orator, that's not his resume. What does he, what's his resume? He says, this is my letter. This is my resume to you. What does he say? You might know. Well, the church itself is, is, is his letter. That's true. And then there's something else he says in chapter 9. Suffering. I'll boast that I share in the sufferings of Christ. Because that's what the present age is about. Is the gospel coming through the witness of the Christians who suffer. And in their suffering have joy and love and grace, etc. And so there's a real sense of we are here now to, to bear the cross of Christ. But... To your other point, does that make the Psalms just a bunch of bull? No, you, you can't possibly understand the Psalms if you don't believe in heaven and hell. That's where all of this becomes true. There will be hell for those who reject God. And by rejecting David, they were rejecting God. Because God, David, was who? Christ. He was God's anointed. He was a messianic kind of figure. Now, see, I just said a boatload right now. Do y'all have any questions about that? That's the key to unlocking Psalms, is make sure you translate into the New Covenant. Christ typed by David, and the voice of the Psalms is now Christ. Even if, in the imitation of Christ, we are called to pray the Psalms and experience it. But you're going to have to go through that grid or you're going to make a lot of mistakes. And quite frankly, if you just have an ounce of honesty in you, it's going to be, it'll make you a cynic. Because really, the Psalms are just a bunch of bull if I don't go through that process. Because again, it's always talking about this incredible prosperity. When your kingdom comes, the nations are going to shudder. They're going to, oh, they're not going to know what to do with you walking around that temple. Look at these kings and how they're being made fools of. <sighs> I mean, you know, when I was young, I used to listen to that and think, you know, and, and honestly, I just bought into it pretty naively. I'm telling you, that's just not true. Now. Is it? And so there it is. Very, very dangerous stuff, though. I mean, how, we've talked about it before. How do we count success in a church? What would it look like? We were talking about this other day as church planners in our meeting, and, and um, you know, Fairfield just celebrated their, what, three year, and they had a beautiful uh, time, invited all their friends to come. And, but what, what, what you see happening there is 
that Christianity is defined not by the, the things that the Corinths were looking for. It's being defined by there's a family of God being built here. There's a DNA that's, that, that came into Fairfield, and that DNA is the body of Christ, the family of God. It's not an event. It's a community, and the kind of community it is that is being celebrated, not an event Christianity. So lots of stuff comes out. Any questions about what I've said so far? I'm going to zip through here. You can see what I'm doing, but you know, it's under the, so we've talked about the temporal political um, aspects of that, the spiritual enemies uh, versus the temporal enemies. Um, Promised land, another example of that, Um, being careful to make that, that crossover. Um, David is a type of Christ. We've talked about that. This is a lot of good scripture. If you have time to read it, um, you know, Acts 2 makes that very explicit, for instance. Um, three main questions. How was this used in the original Old Covenant? How does this relate to Jesus? How does it relate to a Christian who is in Christ and the church? That's basically the steps you're taking there. And then you can go through some examples here, and and I'd just walk you through some of this stuff. Um, questions that you want to learn to ask. You know, uh, what? how would it, you know, you can see the kind of questions you're going to do. All right? Can we any questions about the Psalms? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there was, and, and yet it's going to be totally. This is the bigger picture. You know, Paul talks about the law and the you know the old covenant as tutoring us to Christ. How did Israel get tutored to Christ? They, yeah. Now, talk, talk to me about that. Why would that tutor you to Christ? That's right. Okay. What's happening is if you are self-righteous, you are getting exasperated. The same Israel that took the vow at Mount Sinai, we will do all that you tell us to do. And all those covenant curses and stipulations and blessings, all the curses and blessings, you know, which are predicated upon obedience. Poor Israel, man. You know, they got glimpses, but they were never, ever in a peaceful situation after that. I mean, even when they went to, to, they got into the, the promised land, there was one skirmish war after another skirmish war after another skirmish war. All coming in from the north, which we'll hear about in Revelations, Armageddon. And that's going to be a big issue as we get there in a minute. You'll see where it's going. Okay, wisdom. Any other questions? I'm sorry. Yeah, did I I hope I answered. Yes. In many, yeah, in a typed way, they do. And not, not in a literal, he's going to come in three years type of thing. But clearly there is an anticipation of the Messiah. There's a lot of prophecy in the Psalms, even if it's by virtue of what we just did, typology. As in the Psalms being a type of Christ, it now prepares us for Christ in the way that we should expect. Christ came lamenting. And he came with great, you know, with great signs of wonders. And and reconstructing a new new creation. And so we see that already 
set up by the Psalms, for instance. Now, let's talk about uh, the Proverbs. Um, you've been doing that in Sunday school, and hopefully it's pretty familiar to you. But the key here is um, to unlock the Proverbs is, is the way in which the Proverbs is articulating God's law. So y'all just went through this course, or at least hopefully you did. I mean, what did you learn about the way that the Proverbs treats sin? Good. In other words, if, if a more covenantal, forensic way of doing uh, sin is it's a trespass against God's law, that's how you define sin, wisdom is going to interpret sin as it's stupid. It, it's self-destructive. And, um, and it's amazing. I, uh, one of my sons just gave, put on our little email app um, this thing, this little TED Talk or something about, you know, what, how does organiz- healthy organizations, uh, how do they flourish or whatever? I won't get into the details. Basically, it makes the case that uh, oftentimes organizations are only, you know, uh, you know they're focused on, on output, they're focused on performance and, you know, the metrics of those performances, whatever the organization is. His, his point, and he was using uh, uh, special forces as an example of the Navy SEALs, but his point was that no really successful organizations focus on trust uh, and performance, but trust. And by trust, it means loyalty. Like, there is a trust quotient. Well, really what it's saying is character matters. You know, you can't be a jerk and succeed in life. Jerks just don't. It, eventually it comes back to kill him or haunt him. That's the message that this guy was saying. Well, that's sort of what Proverbs is going to say, that, that be a jerk. And what is a jerk? Well, it's those who violate God's law, the law of love. They're not loving. They're selfish. They're, they don't hold their tongue, and, and are, they're not, they don't have a gracious turn. They, they bite and backbite, and you can go through it. Pride, which precedeth the fall, and, you know, all these sorts of things that you get, they're wisdom sayings, short, pithy wisdom sayings that are reflecting the teachings of the law of God. But in a very, yet like the Psalms, in a very... I'll get to you uh, if you're uh, if you're waiting. No, you were. I, I cut you. Okay, I'm sorry. I was going to just tell you. I'm, I'm, I see it. Um, the way you said the Psalms is the same thing with the Proverbs. It's a very earthy way of dealing with the law. And the other thing you're going to find in the in this is uh, that there's so it. it I'm going to find a little passage that says it. But there's a lot of salvation themes in Proverbs. And you begin to think, hold it, what's going on here? I mean, when you read, when you read about the law and, and the good news of the wisdom is life, that's the good news of, of the Proverbs. Wisdom is portrayed as preaching. So there's a lot of personification of wisdom. You know, sin can become she, the adulteress. And it's not about adultery. It's about the way that we are enticed by the the fleshly attraction to sin. Um, wisdom is portrayed then as preaching in the streets, 128293. It's good news is life. Wisdom gives life. So heed the admonishment of wisdom as a path of life and attach 
and, and, uh, and the teachings of the wise is like, it's literally described as the tree of life. Now, where is that going to take you? Where is wisdom to be found? Who is wise? Well, one thing you're going to do when you read the Psalms is no one's wise, if you're honest. It, it just, it, there's nothing that I can read that more exposes my sinfulness than the Proverbs. Because it gets down to the way it really looks when we do it. But the other thing that it does is it points me to, okay, then who is wise? Because the, if, if it's very much framed like a contract, even though it's not forensically looking like a contract, you become wise, you will have abundant life. You become stupid, <laughs> unwise, you will not have an abundant life. You'll have a cursed life. Now, what does that sound like to you? Christian, New Testament. What does that sound like? Jesus. Paul makes that point in Corinthians. There's, oh, he talks about all the foolishness of the world and all the stuff. Then he goes, what does he say? But Christ, the wisdom of God unto salvation. The wisdom of God. Christ fulfills wisdom is another way of saying Christ fulfills the law. Now, what is this? So where do I see the good news is life? Wisdom is good news unto life. Where do we see that transaction in the New Testament? This is not a trick question. You know it. I know you do. It's just too simple. Okay, the cross, wherein he satisfies the curse of being stupid. So he became stupid for us, if you will, in that sense. But, but you're getting at it, but what's the word we use? What's the word for good news? Yeah, the gospel is the wisdom of God, fulfilled and, and made available to us. How does that happen? Well, the curse is taken care of, the righteousness is taken care of, and we now, in the gospel, become more and more sanctified as a legal way of saying it, righteousified. A wisdom way of saying it is we become more and more wise under more and more life, even now, but eventually the life, the wisdom of Christ imputed to our account makes us wise unto eternal life. It's the gospel. And then, then there's real scriptures that talk about this. It's, we're not just making this stuff up. And so that's pretty important. Um, so you see there's, a wis there's often limits to wisdom that are attainable by man in the present age. Um, the other thing, the other key to unlock it is going to be parallelism. Um, did y'all talk about that in your little Sunday school classes? The hope, but that's really crucial uh, as a literary genre. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, or I set up here, basically the mashal, which is the word proverb in the Hebrew, it, it really is just a, a, a short pithy saying. That's all it is. It's very hard to, you know, you really can't. I mean, every every you know this is where you probably have the shortest have i used the word pericope in here yet i mean that's a kind of a technical term for a discernible passage uh where there's beginning and end proverbs are probably going to be your shortest pericopes or or unit of, of 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 language that you'll read often it can be one sentence with two parts um the problem with the psalms is you think well i'm going to read one chapter a, a day the psalms are not typically organized in well, they're not originally in chapters, and they weren't meant to be. They are literally a long collection of one 
liner, sometimes pithy wisdom sayings. So don't think of chapters. You really are going to get screwed up because it's not like, oh, this is the chapter on blank theme. What you will do is what, uh, you know, I've done here and you have this. And so I hope you can use it. But if I were to, if I were to say, okay, I want to study the Proverbs, I'd probably take something like this. Um, a, a little, re here's some of the big themes of the Proverbs, recurring themes, the fear of the Lord, truth and deceit, warnings about sexual immorality, instructions about the tongue, discipline, you know, pride, humility, listening to advice and instruction, guarding one's company, marriage, a blessing, cheerfulness, God's sovereignty over providence, vanity of this life, knowledge, wisdom, you see hard work and labor, justice, true friendship and versus concealed love, generosity to the poor, a brother offended, contention in the home, a virtuous woman, one ways are not God's, our ways are not God's way. You, I can go on and on, materialism. And here, just a collection of, of see, I've just, there we go. Bo, 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 bo. Well, that would be a nice, fun study to go and just reflect on these Psalms in these thematic ways, but you'll find them all over the place. So don't try to think of it as how would you then, and that's why so many studies in Psalms to me are so frustrating. When we were looking for books on Psalms uh, for you guys or just something to give our teachers, it, it just, they're just hard to find that are really good um, because they're all trying to find a way to put the books together. Screw the books, <laughs> you know, the chapters or whatever they're called. Um, think of them in, in, as short, pithy, fra you know, phrases. Um, and then these phrases, just watch very carefully the way that the clauses are related. I mean, it's a real simple, you know, word diagram, or I mean, uh, sentence diagram, if you wanted to do it, because typically you'll see that that they were related one of three ways. I'm trying to find it here. Um, where did I put that? Did I pass it? Up, up, down, down. God, how can you remember all that stuff? There he is. Yeah, um, you know, synonymous parallelism, antithetical parallelism, and synthetic parallelism. Uh, uh, they, they, it's pretty self-explanatory. It's this, and it's not this. It's this, which is really this. So that's, you know, uh, uh, synonymous. Synthetic is this, and then it explains this. It's like this is, is it's, not, it's, not a, uh, it's not the same as synonymous. It's this is part one and two is the best way to put it, of what this is. But they're always one thing. They're not two. So you want to come up, you want to answer the question, what does this proverb teach? It teaches blind. There is a one answer to that. If you've separated them, you've missed the point. The two clauses. Okay? Any questions about Proverbs? I know I'm going really fast, but we're going to get into the much more difficult. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, or it'll say, they do prosper in this life, and we're jealous, and we need to step back and get on the balcony and figure out what it's like. And I'm thinking of, I think it's Psalm 73, where it says, yeah, but if you were look, if once he went in the temple, and in the temple means you went up into the heavens, and you see now life as through the lens of heaven, now I see that these people who are flourishing are the most dangerous people, in the most dangerous place of all, you see, because they are like they're, I think the analogy is they're like sitting on a cliff about to fall off. 
and they don't even know it because of the prosperity that's enticing. But but keep so so what's the question? I guess is what. Well, I, again, it's the, that's why the redemptive historical grid is so important, because you're going to remember that while this is very earthy and in this sort of flesh of emotions, which are good, we, we're, we're fine with emotions, all of that, that you're going to be asked through redemptive history to perch yourself up in the heavens where Christ is seated and look at this from the more eternal perspective of redemptive history. Where's all this going? If I were sitting in heaven looking at this, how would I now understand what it's saying? So keep that heaven perspective. Set your minds on things above where Christ is seated, said Paul. That heaven's perspective, and you will get wisdom. And that's what the Proverbs is trying to do, is give you wisdom from the heavenly perspective. Because this world, it's disguised. What seems what is stupid often doesn't seem stupid. It seems they, often it has an immediate gratifying effect to it which the Proverbs is very honest about. Good. good. Okay. Whew. Take a breath. We're going to spend the next 40 minutes on Gospels and um, Revelation. I think we got that. Yeah. And um, so probably 20 minutes each if I can do that. Um, try to hold me to it. But what, it, you know, this, you might think that the Gospels is the easiest thing to translate. I'll start with that. I think the greatest mistake about interpreting the prov uh, Gospels is that everyone assumes that it's easy because it's where we are. We're now, I'm not having to do this covenantal thing, right? We're not, we're not in the Old Testament, right? Peggy's heard this before. I can tell you by the way you're laughing. You know where I'm going. Wrong. Where, where did the, when does the new covenant begin? Cross of Christ. I've said this to y'all before. There's no way y'all knew this so perfectly. All right, I'm glad you remembered it. That's great. Um, yeah, it's the cross of Christ. It's, I should say it's the triplex. Uh, it's, it's accomplished by, you know, the birth, death, resurrection, ascension of Christ. Those four dynamics. And so it's, it's, so, the, so you could say the gospel or the new covenant is being executed even if it's not yet executed. And so that becomes your greatest challenge, is when you're reading the, the things that Jesus is saying, trying to understand, is he now exasperating the Pharisees and the Sadducees by holding them to the law of God and showing them by their own knowledge of the law of God that they are not righteous? So could you give me an example? Anybody want to give me an example of where you can see Jesus literally being a good old covenant prophet? Okay, but is that an old covenant teaching or is that a new covenant teaching? So, so tell me how the, I, I, I think you're, you're right, I'm not questioning, but work it out for me. How do you see the Old Covenant in there? So it's the outward law. Okay. 
And is that anti-old covenant? Was it supposed to be that way? So it's not a problem of the law that it's an outside, not inside. Right? Right. And there's an outward manifestation of that sin, and there's an inward manifestation of that sin is what you're saying, right? Right. Right. So you mean Moses wasn't saved? I'm trying to help you out here a little bit. You want to think with me for a minute. I'm helping you. Uh, yeah. So tell me how were were the Pharisees? I get, and this is this is the reason I'm really slowing down on this because you're because this is a real big misunderstanding. So is the problem the law? The law just can't save us. Okay. What is the problem? But couldn't the law clean up this inside? Why not? What, what, what was wrong with the law? Okay, we couldn't do it, but the law, is that a problem with the law or is that a problem with me? Okay, good. Everybody, let's, let's stop right there. Yep. Well, I, but, but I got, you're going to have to be real clear because, and, and that's why, I, so did y'all hear what just happened there? I was listening, and what I'm wanting to make sure I didn't hear was the law is flawed. That wasn't what Jesus came and said. He said, he said I did not come to what annul the law. I came to fulfill it. But what he's going to show is that the law is holistic. It's, it's both. It's, it's outward, behavioral. It's attitudinal. It's, it's your motives, it's your heart. And so what he's showing them is that, in fact, they don't keep the law. The law says to, uh, you know, you see it all through the Proverbs, by the way, about the way we should treat the poor. And so when the rich young ruler comes to Christ claiming that he has fulfilled the what? Do you remember the passage? What did he think he fulfilled? The law. What does Jesus do? He, he is a good prophet. He does what Ezekiel did. He does what Jeremiah did. These are the kind of things that Amos would say. And he says, what do you mean? i tell you what, um, why don't you uh, sell all you have and give to the poor? And he walked away sad. And the disciples come back and say, God, I'm, man, this is impossible. And that's when Jesus said, yeah, it is. What's impossible with man is not impossible with God. So what is he doing? He's showing how the law is good and has a robust and holistic view of the flourishing of life in a manner which the Pharisees, their problem then, according to Paul, Jesus, was what? Did they, we think of the Pharisees, and at least a lot of evangelicals do this, and I could start citing people, Frank Viola and others, who say we don't want to talk about the law anymore. There's people in pulpits, big pulpits, who are talking about getting rid of the Old Testament in their life because of the law. And, and that's not what Jesus did. He actually comes onto the scene and he says, you Pharisees who boast of the law have a very tiny law. You have reduced the law to very external, superficial, and very selectively, I might add, you keep the laws that you kind of like to keep, and then you judge the world based on their inability to keep the law the way you keep it. And then, so what does Jesus do? He comes on the scene as a prophet. 
I can think of, uh, you know, another example of, of this that, that could be confused. What about this thing about going to the altar? And if you go to the altar and you see your brother sinning, you need to leave that altar and go get it straightened out. Now, how many of you have heard that passage used around the Lord's table? Raise your hand. About half of you. I've heard it all the time growing up, whenever I go to church. I hear it all the time, even when I go back to churches in those areas, and I go to these kind of churches. All the time I hear it. I bet you've heard it more than you think. You know, I mean, it's literally part of the liturgy of many churches that, hey, if you, if you have sin, unrepentant sin, you know, you can't do this, or, you know, some kind of thing. Well, how would the, how would the knowledge that you are now reading Christ as an old covenant, as a new covenant in transition, prophet, relying, you, you know, executing the old covenant and fulfilling the old covenant, that theme that he said, that's key. Memorize that. I came not to annul the law or abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That's the hermeneutic key that's going to unlock the teachings of Jesus for you. And I'm going to keep you. So where, where, what's, what's wrong with that passage? You might want to tell me? Going to, the, you know, the altar and everything? I mean, it's there. What's not valid? Where are you? <laughs> well, you've got the right practice. You're right. But why isn't that all? Well, I mean, Jesus taught it. Why isn't that an application? If, 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 what, what do you, what? okay, good. I'm going to let other people talk. Go ahead. No, no. Oh, God, I thought you had it. That's close. I like that. You're right. That's a Hebrews kind of thing. You're all right. You're totally right. But we've got to ask the question, what altar is he talking about? Well, what altar is he talking about then in the Old Testament? Huh? Go ahead. Well, there were a lot of, there were a lot of sacrifices. There were a lot of sacrifices, right? So this is where I'm going. Was he talking about the uh, uh, the Day of Atonement sacrifice there? Was he talking about that kind of altar, the one that's done once a year that Christ fulfilled when he went to the Lord's table and and did the Passover meal? Is that the altar that now we celebrate at the table at the Christ every week? No. He was talking about the Thanksgiving sacrifice. Those who would come and give thanks. And so what does he say there? In the context, he says, you want to give thanks, obey God. He actually tells them that, 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 that you need to then, hey, you want to give a Thanksgiving altar? Well, I'll tell you, if you come to the altar to give thanks and you're a hypocrite, leave the altar because you're not giving thanks that way. That's not God. And that is a theme all through the scripture that your sacrifices, and they're speaking particularly of these these thanksgiving offerings, these thank offerings, they're a mockery, says the Old Testament prophet. All the prophets would talk about it. He, they would say things, I, God does not desire your sacrifices. He desires your obedience. And so what, what, is, what is the prophet, Jesus Christ, doing? He's exasperating the living death out of these self-righteous Jews who claimed to believe and to own the law, but yet were not keeping it according to the law. So you were right there to talk about our understanding of Passover the way you did. 
But in that case, if you look at the context, it's pretty clear it's a thanksgiving offering. Same thing with Paul. When Paul in chapter um, one, uh, 16 talks about this is my sac he talks about the church being his sacrifice. Many Christians look at that and say, oh man, you know, how can he say that him, him being a church planner is satisfying the atoning sacrifice for sin? Well, he's not talking about the atoning sacrifice. That's Remember Romans 12, offer yourselves a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God. What's he talking about? Anybody guess? Which is your spiritual service of worship? He's talking about Thanksgiving. You want to be thankful? Bring an offering of your, and he talks about the gifts of the body of Christ. Right in chapter 12. Bring your gifts. You want to be thankful? Don't just sing Kumbaya. Take your gifts and give them to the church. Your spiritual gifts. That's what Paul's saying. So back to the Gospels. Very, very important key there. I could, we could, can you, any questions about that first point? That we are now dealing with a uh, transition from old to new. And much of, uh, another example, one more, and then I'm going to get that hand, whoever it is. Um, uh, another example is the Lord's Prayer. How are you going to read the Lord's Prayer? Was he instructing Christians how to pray? I know it's going to blow your mind. Well, yeah. But if, you've, if you look back at it, you begin to realize that this is the prayer for the Messiah. He's telling them how to pray. What should you be praying for? Pray for the coming of the Messiah. I am the bread of life. I am the, I mean, you just walk right through it. And these are all messianic themes, the kingdom come. And so, so there's a sense in which we have to be careful how we do that. Uh, there's a question. Yeah, go ahead, whoever it is. Well, good. You're in this church a long time. That tells me something. But go ahead. What? Yeah, we are. Yeah. That, that's my point. If you treat that altar like a communion table, you're, you're at the wrong altar. That's not the altar he's talking about. It's not that he... See, in other words, I'm not going to say... I so wish you could get over so I could see your face. I can't even see... If, um, but he's not going to say... Um, what a lot of people would say to get to get to the right thing. Well, uh, Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial lamp. You know, he he fulfilled that altar for us. Well, it's true he did, but that's not the. He's not talking about the uh, 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 altar of atoning sacrifice. He's talking about the altar of thanksgiving. So, in a true sense, like what Paul is going to say. If you're thankful, show it by obeying Christ, or by obeying God. That's all he's really saying. And we still can obey that. So in that sense, I'd say we shouldn't be hypocrites. That's his point. We shouldn't say, thank you, thank you, thank you, God, and turn right around and, and, and disobey him. I know. That's what I'm trying to say. We're missing the communion table wants us to remember the sacrifice of the lamb, the atoning sacrifice for our sins of the sacrificial lamb. Think Passover. Okay, that's that altar. That's another altar, the Day of Atonement altar. Um, this altar was another altar, a Thanksgiving altar, a sacrifice of Thanksgiving. And he's saying, if you really understood what that Thanksgiving altar was about, yes, you might bring a turtle dove and offer a Thanksgiving sacrifice. But 
the real thanksgiving that God was desiring in that sim, in that sacrament, if you will, is the, is the is a thanksgiving of a, of thanks is the thanksgiving of obedience. And that's what you hear all through the Old Testament in the prophets. They will use that altar all through it. You just go look up sacrifices, and I'll guarantee you, you'll find a lot of references of prophets talking about God doesn't desire your sacrifices. Clearly, he's not saying God doesn't desire the atoning sacrifice for your sin. He's talking about the sacrifices of Thanksgiving. Now, I, so I think that's pretty clear, right? That's right. That's right. Give us, give him your life. That's right. That's right. And so you don't take that passage. So you're not going to use that passage um, in, a, in a worship service because that passage isn't talking about the Lord's Supper. I will, though, use the atoning sacrifice in the temple to talk about the Lord's Supper because it is a foreshadowing a type of what we have now fulfilled by Christ in going to the cross for us which is why we aren't going to be self-righteous when we come to the Lord's table. Okay? Which one? It's in Matthew. Um, I, I don't have it on my head. It's like, I think five, maybe four or something like that. I can't remember. Yeah, real quick. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I won't, yeah, I'm not sure what that means, but I'll, that's fine. I'm sure it's right. You can do that. Okay, I want to go through some things here with you real quickly. But that, I wanted to start with that key. Be careful about the covenantal issue. Um, just, just so you know some things. So another problem, um, it, knowing a little bit of how the Gospels were written, um, it's pretty universally understood, and, you, and I show you how you can know this by these notes here. I don't know if y'all can read all this. But there's what's called Markian priority. It's almost for certain that both Matthew and Luke had Mark as one of their sources. And you can see that in the quotations and, and, the, and much of what comes in both. You'll, and, the, and what's interesting about it is you'll see that both Mark and Matthew and Luke will say something the same way, which would tell you that, and, and like the way they put the words together, in a way that they were both taking the same script as, their, as one of their sources. And so clearly we, we know that. Um, there's also uh, what's called a Q source. Now this is a little more theoretical but it's also, again, pretty, pretty certain. And we, that means it's a source we don't know. Now, the, the, the word Q coming from quell probably, which means source. Now, that's, we've already talked about how the Bible's put together. This, this shouldn't surprise you that, that there were writings, there's oral tradition, and when, you're, when you compile a story like a good historian, you're going to compile it through the use of sources. You're going to go to scrapbooks and you're going to go to, you know, if there is a, a, an earlier version of the story, you're going to take that and you're going to take what, you know, all the various types of sources that you have. Now that's going to be important because it, there'll be, because, well, you'll see in a minute because, um, one of the, uh, one of the things that you're now learning and I think I've mentioned this before, but the, the other secret to the Gospels is remember, they're not writing a history book, though they are writing history. But what, what do you think the difference is? 
If I, is that just foolish, what I just said? Sounds it kind of, right? They're not writing a history book or a book on history, but they are writing history. What do you think I mean by that? Okay. Yeah. Yes. Good. They do have an agenda. And, and like every historian, typically, they have an agenda. Even if it's just to give you a chronology history, that's an agenda. Well, the, the, the purpose of the Gospels is not, remember, where, what book is the Gospel in? What do we call this book? The Bible, God's revelation of redemption. It's a redemptive book. It's a, it is a theology book. It is about God, theos. And it's about salvation with God. And so their agenda is to, to introduce and explain Jesus Christ as the, the redemptive historical answer to the whole redemptive story of God. And so it's about Christ, but who Christ is relative to his mission, which is redemptive. And so while you will see similarities in their book, wording maybe will be the same, reflecting perhaps common sources, you'll also see a lot of differences. Now, here's the big mistake. For instance, how many feeding of, of the 5,000 are there, or 7,000, whatever it is? How many? Four, two, two. Well, that's the, that's the thing. A lot of people will say, hold on here. In fact, I forgot the number myself. Sorry, I can't use this reference very well right now. But, but one of the big mistakes is we view the differences between the Gospels as a problem. That's an example of where we impose a modern question on an ancient text, this whole issue of inerrancy. And therefore, we come at it with a, with a skepticism, and we say, oh, yep, look at that. There, for instance, I can't remember which book it is now. Y'all maybe can do it better. But one person has the, the fig tree dying, being cursed on the way to the temple. The other has the fig tree dying on the way out of the temple or after the temple. Oh, there it is. Proof. This isn't God's word. There's a mistake. On the what? Okay, good. Yes, right. There are a lot of those discrepancies. You'll see, so on the one hand, you come at it and you're saying, hold it. How, does it, how do we understand that they seem to be talking about the same thing, there's some same wording here, and yet various discrepancies between the way it's described maybe. But there's no discrepancy on the theology. And in fact, you'll certain what you're going to learn, and so you don't want to, to do a, um, so you're not going to want to try to harmonize the, 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 the two. Where do I talk about that here? Let me see it here. Let's see here. Does anybody see that? Yeah, there it is. Recognize that the Gospels were a literary medium for doing theology rather than merely historical chronology. And this will give the interpreter an eagerness then, I'm sorry, let me try to get this thing, there we go an eagerness to utilize the differences rather than to try to harmonize them. The emphasis of one, as realized by a comparison to the other, will actually give you insight into the intended point of a given passage. It's a clue. There is a redaction or editing of the life and teachings of Christ under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that needs to be evaluated. And so therefore we can be fairly sure of each evangelist's interest and concerns by the way he selected, shaped, and arranged his materials. Okay? 
And so there you have, uh, you're not trying to harmonize it. And so we don't want to use a harmony of the Gospels. We want to use a, a synopsis. And so the idea being that you compare the passage and its parallels with other passages, and the differences, see, are going to give you the clue as to what this author is trying to say that's unique. You all, maybe you've asked yourself, why do we have four Gospels? And John, it's a total different form. We just put that in another category because he's focusing folk mostly on the temple. And he's writing to a group of people that mostly were not being write, written to by the other three, which were more the Pharisee side. He's writing to the Pharisee side, Sadducee side. And his whole gospel, I mean, is half of the gospel is, is the, the last discourse. Half of the gospel. It starts with the upper room in chapter 13, 14. And, get, and, and wants to frame very carefully the, not even the resurrection. Resurrection's a, a penultimate event in John's, it's the ascension. All about the ascension. And how important the ascension is for, for us today, the church, to know that God is still with us. And how is he with us? By the Holy Spirit. There's this, there's this mansion with many rooms. He's talking about one church, many forms, all filled with the Holy Spirit. It's an incredible statement. I am with you now. Um, he says he's going to come and some won't recognize me. How many people have interpreted that in John and thought, well, he's talking about the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ. No, he's not. He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to come in, in effect, the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. But there are a lot of people who are going to reject me and not know. And, they, and you will know me, but many will not know me in those days. Is that what we live in today? Absolutely. So you got it. So don't think of the diff, don't take this modernist extracurricular idea that starts with a skepticism about the inerrancy of Scripture. See, once you've recognized, hey, I do believe in God. I do believe He's revealed Himself through Scripture. I'm now going to read it as if it was intentional. It changes everything. It's called presuppositionalism. Right? My presupposition is God is, and He does reveal Himself, and He has through the Scriptures. And therefore, my assumption is there isn't an error. Therefore, I'm not looking for errors. I'm going to see if there's difference. It's not an error. It's intentional. And now I'm going to interpret it that way. And it'll wake, it'll wake you up to the meaning of the Scripture that way. Any questions about that? Of course, you're going to want to know things like, um, um, then, and another big thing is then parables. We talked about this briefly last week, but don't think of allegories. They're, they're typically not allegories. Let me give you an example. Um, you know, let's see here. I think uh, I'll give you an example by, uh, let's see here. So there it is. Um, I think this is Augustine. So Augustine, one of his few flaws, I think, is he tended to do some allegorizing. And it was a very popular interpretive method back in those days. Um, and so you have this, this instance. You know, a, a, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he's going to say, that's Adam. He's, he's importing a theologically, he may even be theologically correct, in the sense that, well, what is it saying about Adam? Well, Adam, but but he would take something like that, and, and this is an example. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's Adam going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the heavenly city of peace from which Adam fell. Jericho, the moon, and thereby signifies Adam's mortality. Thieves, 
represents the devil and his angels, stripped him, namely of his immortality, beat him by persuading them to sin. You know, he goes through these sort of things. And we're, I think we're missing the point. Even if he might have said some good things from it, it's theologically correct. So what are we supposed to do? Think of, it's, it's a, a, the story of a parable. Um, it, it's, it's really like a proverb in story form. And um, it's metaphorical or it's figurative, but that's not allegorical. It's a sim similitude expanded from a single explicit comparison to a picture. There's another uh, grammatical way to define it. It's a story. Um, uh, it's an example. It, these are all the different ways that it can be a parable. What is a parable? It's a wisdom saying. It's basically a story way of saying this is wisdom according to the gospel and the gospel framework. And so you're going to have one meaning. And think about, um, so when you interpret the, the parables, so I, I'm going to zip you down here to example, the prodigal son. Now, it's gonna, you're going to have to be careful because if we want to try to form a personal relationship, this is another thing. So you don't want to try to form a personal relationship with the par parable. Oh, well, I'm the brother. I mean, I've heard this done, you know, again, in Bible. Well, who's the father in the room here? Oh, I, that would be like me. I'm more like the father. No, I'm, I'm like the big brother. No, but I'm more like the little brother. Okay. You're, you're starting to piece it out. You're not getting the one point. There is a point. So where's the focus? So for instance, think about how that would change you uh, and the way you understand the prodigal son. The context of the parable, see, is clearly the point. You've got to read parables in context. They're often done in that way. So the parable, the context of the parable is the murmuring of the Pharisees over Jesus' acceptance of eating with wrong kind of people. Now, in that context, who is the focus of the prodigal son story? How many think the prodigal son's the focus? Raise your hand. How many think the father's raise your hand? How many think the brother's raise your hand? Aren't you smart? Yeah, it makes sense. He's the grumbling, self-righteous guy who doesn't like to see Jesus be so nice to a sinner. And so that's the point. The point of the story is that the Pharisees had a very low view of the law, but they also had a very low view of God's love. They underestimated the love of God. And how great that love is. And that's the story of the prodigal son, right? So that's, that's the thing about a proverb. The other thing about a, a parable that you want to be careful of, I'm zipping all around here because I do, I got to get to the revelations here. I'll just say it real quick. I won't illustrate it. But um, keep in mind that parables are not, uh, they are not pre presented as good teaching methods. If you go and say, why do you preach in parables? He'll say this in Matthew 13, while hearing, they don't hear. While seeing, they don't see. To you, it's been given to know the kingdom, the secrets of the kingdom of God, but to them, their eyes are blind. It was a judgment that he spoke in parables. And it was also a blessing that he spoke in parables. Those who received the, the, the you know, explanation is, is, parabolic to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. Those who were confounded by his parables, that was, that was symbolic of those who don't have ears to hear. And this was a common practice by the prophets in the Old Testament, to speak in a way that only the insider could know, 
because, and by insider, I mean those given the spirit of God to know. And so that's a really interesting thing there. Um, you know, maybe it's good to tell stories and sermons, but don't tell me to do it because of the parables. <laughs> if I do a parable, I'm going to explain it, obviously. But you see my point. Don't think of it, okay, a good sermon is someone who tells a lot of stories. Because that's what Jesus did. Well, it's a prophetic tool. Then, then what you really want me to do is tell a story that no one understands. And then I get you down here and we have a sermon discussion. I say, let me tell you what it really meant. And assuming that the people who would come down here would not want to be down here and hear it anyway or something. I don't know. It just gets all messed up. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's the Gospels. Pretty quick. I encourage you to read over it. Um, let's go to Revelations because we've got about uh, seven minutes. Can you believe I'm going to do Revelations in seven minutes? Um, I'll, I'll touch on it next week, but I'm going to, I'm going to start it today. All right. Anybody, you, you learned actually this week what apocalypse means or apocalyptic, uh, this, if you were in Sunday school, you learned it. Do you remember what Jeff said? It's a revelation. It's an unveiling. It's kind of lifting the veil. So that's right. Um, but it's, but it has, but that's sort of the, that's the root word meaning. Okay. And, and we've talked about that. Um, but what you're going to ask is what is revelate, what is apocalyptic based on John? particularly. So if you were to go to John chapter 1 through 3, um, let me find it here. I'll give you this. i go here and talk about it. Okay. Look at John Revelations 1.1. 1, 1. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants what is necessary to happen shortly and the things which God signified by sending his angel to his servant uh, John who witnessed and testified the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ as much as he saw. I mean, there's a lot of really important statements here that maybe you haven't st stopped to think about. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. That is, that, 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 those three verses we could talk about for two hours. But real quickly, what is he telling you about eschatology? What time are we in? Is he, are we in the, the, the time of the kingdom of God, the millennial? What, what you know, later will be symbolized by the millennium? Are we in the millennium? Hmm? Yes? No. Both. Both. That's a key. Look, it's near. It's... It's been inaugurated, but it's not been consummated. That's the now and not yet that we talk all the time about. It's the now and not yet. It's near, but it's not complete. But it's in the midst of you. You could translate, it's in your midst, but it's not full, complete. Well, that tells you everything about how you're going to interpret Revelations right there. The second thing you're going to learn about Revelation and the way in which it's unveiling the truth of the gospel is that it's, it's done in what? what is it what's the language here, the descriptive language of this book, of this revelation? Notice the underlines. It's going to be shown you. These are visions. These are visions. Now, whether they're visions that literally he had a night dream and, and now he's just sitting, waking up the next day and writing them all down real quick, 
or whether these are visions that God gives him through his cognitive abilities and thinking and, and working and pursuing, I would say probably the latter. But the, it's, it's, it is C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia, or it's C.S. Lewis Pelandra. Pel, how do you say that? Pel, yeah, that, the three-volume trilogy. Um, it's that. That's what it is. And everybody would read C.S. Lewis in those instances, and they would know that it's the symbols, it's the pictures, it's the visuals that's preaching, that's teaching. And so that's apocalyptic literature. It's signified, it's shown, and it's witnessed by John, as in he becomes someone who saw it himself through, in his mind's eye, I guess, given to him by God. And so that's very important. Um, the other thing that's important, do you know that the Revelations is the, is the quotes, the, it refers to, uses the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book in the Bible? So he is taking constantly these images of the Old Testament or these instances like slavery becomes bondage to sin, Babylon becomes Rome, but it's any, it's any uh, anti-God regime or, and, and off you go. Um, so here's the thing you want to do is, is particularly he's going to, it's you, it's just going to absolutely, it's almost like expositing Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah. You'll see those three prophets just slobbered all through it in the same kind of mechanism. Um, the son of man, for instance, language of Daniel shows up in this book. And that being this image of Christ who is like a man and yet glorified in the very beginning. And he's the son of man, the Messiah is the son of man. And off it goes. So, so it's very important um, um, one, so I'm going to go back and just with that little note to remember that we're writing in a time where, where Christians are now really getting slaughtered. These are really, really bad days. And I talk a little bit about that. I give you some quotes from those periods um, that talk about this, but um, the meta narrative, this, this driving revelations is how on earth earth can the kingdom of God have come in Christ and life be like this? Is it really true? It's really causing a major crisis in faith and perseverance. Um, during the reign of Domitian, around 95 AD, uh, emperor worship, of course, was is the subtext of this. Um, even uh, later, Trajan and, and others, uh, first Clement, you know, Clement 1, 1 is a great source that we have that tells you what was happening during those days is, you know, he, he talks about Pliny's letter to Trajan refers to people who had apostatized many years earlier and a few as, as much as 25 years ago, apostatized meaning against emperor worship. Uh, Pliny also noted in 113 AD that he was unsure about the nature of their Christian's creed, but was at least certain that their inflexible obstinacy should be punished. You know, this is the stuff that was going on then by, by their, the, the cult of Dementian. And, and in Ephesus, there was a great idol. I mean, there was a great uh, statue 
of, of Dementian. And so we're going to hear, you're going to see that statue and forms the image that's in Revelations. So what's happening here is a historical context where anti-Christ, anti-Christianism is coming through the emperor. And there's going to be all these associations within Revelations, pictorial associations, and, and the use of numerology, the use of basically to say that the church now is militant and it's going to win. So if you really want to know the purpose of Revelation, it's how can you say uh, we're winning? And he's going to say, we don't look like we're winning, but we win. <laughs> and he tells the story of how that works. Now, so that's the first thing is know the context of Revelation or any apocalyptic genre, because that's typically going to give you the clue of what this, what the historical moment is and why apocalyptic. So why would you use apocalyptic uh, genre? Why would you use it? What would it, what effect does it have when you read it, for instance? It's what? Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, good. What'd you say? Visceral. Good. It's an awakening. It's like you are numb. You are numb under this persecution. You are numb under the struggles of your, of your life. And this is a big, fat, awesome, visceral, sensory explosion that wants to convey something to us about what. And so what is this book about? Is it about the future or is it about the present? Yes, both, but mostly the present. That both gets, you have, uh, what is it, three, four, I have it here, um, four cycles of, of, of seven. So, so, so we've talked about the apocalyptic epistle, it's genre, awakening kind of a thing. Um, it's a letter, don't remember, forget, this is a letter to the church of Jesus Christ. So it's epistolatory, we call it. But it's an epistle written in visuals, right? Um let me let me try to get to something here that's going to help you. Um, oh, I wish I could talk about all this stuff. That, but the use of the images. So this is where I was going. Uh, most of them you're going to find them in the Old Testament, or at least some reference. So images and symbols, numerology. Um, you know, they all have numbers derived from uh, the apocalyptic literature of the Old Testament. Uh, symbols of numbers. Seven seals is a perfect history, a perfect, a, a God, it, almost all of these numbers wants to reflect things like completion or perfection or, or uh, the, the full Israel. So symbols of 12, symbols of thousands is always, you know, the millennia, for instance, the millennialism. It's a very great amount is all you want to know. It's a very great amount. The symbol of 144,000. It's one more number in the book of Revelation. The number was 144,000 is used to note all or most of humanity. It's, it's, it's the masses. Of course, it's taken the 12, two, two times, you know, 12 times 12 times 1,000. These perfect numbers coming together. Um, the illusions, the allusion to Egypt is all throughout it. And of course, Egypt met representing bondage. The allusions to Sodom, 
uh, the, the, which is, of course, talking about immort you know, the whole idea of this, this uh, Sodom to those who have given into immortality and corruption, like the inhabitants of the city of, of Sodom, which God destroyed. Babylon, I already mentioned it, would be a reference to any evil regime. Um, Armageddon, um, it's, there's a real valley called Armageddon. And you know where that valley is? It's right there on the northern section of Judah where all the problems came and all the wars were fought. It's like an ancient battleground. And it, it really is. It's where, the, it's where Israel fought the Canaanites. It's where they, the Chaldeans and, and the Babylonians came from that, that location. So if you, read, if you know your Old Testament, you're, you, you, you know what this stuff means. Oh, yeah, that, that's, that's where they fought the Canaanites. Okay, so he's taking these images. And what do you think it's saying with it? It's saying things like, look, our people have always had to fight. But they always win. Don't lose sight of that. The church militant is the church triumphant, is a message that comes through uh, Revelations. The plagues, I could go on, the desert, you know, the statues, I've already talked about that. Um, uh, it's prophetic. Now, one, one last thing I want to say, and then I will pick up on this next time. Different people try, this will take a lot of time, but I'm just going to, I hope you'll read this before you come back, because we'll start with this, remind me to do this. But there's different views about how to read um, Revelation. One is the preterist view. It's all about the past. They'll, tr they'll locate everything in church history. So Revelation is a prophecy of the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. You'll hear people say that, particularly in certain camps, you know, particularly dis dispensationalism. Oh, there, this, this image or this thing was about the fall of Jerusalem in 70. Oh, this was the Donatist controversy or something. Um, so it's that kind of thing. The historicist view, uh, it's about church history up to now, as in picking up, it's, it's prophesying about what's going to happen after revelations until the coming of Christ. So it's about now. The futurist view, uh, which is, of course, popularized by the Left Behind series, Dispensationalism, it's a very literal interpretation in a manner that generally sees the order of the visions as representing the historical order of future events. So you have these sort of order of the things going, you know, and they're going to see it as an order of, of the future events, and they're going to tag it to very specific things and all of that. The idealist view, Revelation is symbolically portrayed of the conflict between good and evil. There's something true about all of these, maybe, but at least that last one. But what I think is the most Orthodox in understanding of it is what we call the progressive in, in recapitulation pattern. And what you do see is these, it's, it's in contrast to the futurist position that the order of the visions from four, chapter four, verse one through chapter 22, verse five, generally represent the order of future events such that you have seals, you have trumpets, you have bowls, all of course, symbols of representing what, what, what those, those represent. And you have this idea of, of this recapitulation of history, I think it's three times. Listen, Revelation, no, seven sections, each initiated by I saw. So think of it this way. Everybody knows what recapitulate, right? It means to restate something over and over and over again. You have these seven visions, starting with I saw. And if you study them, it becomes very clear that they all follow the same order. They all 
are saying the same thing, just different visions. But what's really happening in those visions is they are getting more and more intense. It's escalating. And so you see that vision. And what's the point? And, and, and so each section runs, I'm not going to go through all this, we don't have the time. But here, here's the bottom line. Um, all the way through it, you see over, and so now you don't have a, one story that ends with the tri tribulation or whatever it is. Um, you have seven times this interaction of there is tribulation, and yet within that tribulation, there is perseverance and victory. The now not yet theme. And so that's what's happening there. I've got to stop. Um, I know you're confused right now because I had to do that really fast and I didn't get a chance to interact with you. So just hold on to your horses. Go back and read this. We'll come back next week and this will be the first thing we want to do, okay? Wasn't that fun? Kind of blowing your mind, isn't it? It's fun stuff. All right. God bless. Thank you for listening to the School of Discipleship. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you like the show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org. Until next time, this is CPC Podcasts.